Hello and welcome to another edition of Best of the Left Podcast. We have a bunch of great interviews lined up for today's show, including Randy Rhodes interviewing Mike Ravel, Tom Harmon interviewing Ralph Nader, Rachel Maddow interviewing Barack Obama, Mike Papantonio interviewing John Edwards, and Davis Fleetwood interviewing Dennis Kucinich. Please welcome to the show Senator Mike Gravel, who is a 2008 uh, candidate for the presidency of the United States of America. <laughs> Hello, Senator. Hi, Randy. <laughs> it's, it's amazing because I've been watching you on the TV and cutting all your audio clips, and now oh. you're actually talking. <laughs> it's really nice. Well, the pleasure's mine. Pleasure's mine. Listen, first of all, I know you've probably been following this Cheney. I'm not an executive branch member. I am a member of the legislative branch. No, I'm two. I'm two. I'm two people in one. I'm a human animal hybrid. But that he doesn't seem to like the ethics of either branch. There's no question about that. And of course, his whole attitude of secrecy, which is permeates his conduct. If I were to name the worst person we have in government, it would be him. Because See, he's intelligent. Some of these other people aren't so intelligent, particularly the president. But he and the other neocons like uh, Richard Pearl, uh, Wolfowitz, and Faye, these, these are, and Crystal, these are dangerous, dangerous people. Well, now, certainly if you can see it, and I can see it, now you're looking at it through a senator's eyes, and I'm looking at it through a citizen's eyes, and if, if the two of us can agree that this man has been operating in a black hole where everything goes in but nothing comes out, uh, and that he has been changing our position on Geneva Conventions, that we torture now, except he calls it just plain old cruelty, and we can do that, and calls waterboarding just a dunk in the water. So we know he, he, he does that. We know that he doesn't tell the other cabinet members. He doesn't tell the Secretary of State. They find out the way we find out, by reading it in the paper. He doesn't tell the National Security Advisor, who's supposed to keep us safe at night. Uh, they have to find out about it in the paper. You know, what is the danger of having a vice president who's not accountable to anybody, including, you know, he may be stupid, but he is the president, and he could stop all this, couldn't he? No, he can't, because he doesn't have the mental perspicuity to do it. <laughs> and we, we assume that, you know, you can sit and reason with George Bush. That's the mistake that the Democrats have done since they took power in January. Oh, we're going to sit down and we're going to reason with him on how to get out of Iraq. He doesn't want to get out of Iraq. He wants to continue this bloodletting. And, of course, the Democrats fall into this trap of uh, politics as usual, where they won't exercise their constitutional power to end this war. That's the tragedy when we accept the conduct of the Cheneys and the Bushes as a matter of fact. It is not a matter of fact. It is wholesale immorality. Well, I agree. I mean, you know, you, you do have uh, uh, you know some Republicans helping the Democrats along a little bit. Uh, you know, saying things like, hey, we got this, the same troops from, you know, walk on the same streets, uh, being attacked by the same people with the same bombs every single day. And I think this might be criminal. You know, you did have a Republican senator stand up and make that statement. Uh, and so, you know, we understand that, you know, you need 67 votes to override any veto. We don't have it. 
Well, wait, say, wait, say, you don't have it, but they're not doing anything to get it. What you can do to override a veto is have every single day for the next 20, 25 days a vote on cloture. You'll have give the American people time to weigh in, and you'll see these people turn. Sure, you'll never have the votes if you don't work and be tough to get the votes. And that includes not only a vote to limit debate in the Senate, that means the, the way to get to override the president's veto. We could end this, our role, by Labor Day if we had some kind of powerful leadership in the Congress. Well, you know, I, I heard you say that, and I, and I thought to myself, I'm going to watch this next appropriations bill. And I did see, you know, the veto, and I did see a new one go up there. And this one only finances it through September of 07 instead of March of 08. And I really do believe that come September, you're going to see a lot of Republicans peeling off of this war, uh, especially with all this news about Cheney, which is why I think that the Oversight Committee is, you know, Henry Waxman, guys of his uh, ilk who are really, you know, devoted to. Oh, he's great. Oh, he's Henry phenomenal. I, lo- I love Henry Waxman. I've loved oh. him for a long time, and I've known for a long time that what he's been up to is since he understood he didn't have a chance of introducing any legislation because we didn't have the rules committee, we didn't have any committees except, you know, five months ago we got the committees back. So he had been using his staff the whole time of the Republican majority to oh, do yeah. it. To Building do it. it. And yeah. maybe I'll tell you, I become president. Henry Waxman with his investigatory committee in the Congress and a few others doing something. We're going to turn over this whole apple cart of garbage that will be able to sift through this and, and pursue these people the way they should be pursued as criminals. Well, you see, that's it. That's what this audience wants. That is what uh, that is the most often. I mean, I get phone calls from people who really do want war crimes. They they want war crimes uh, trials. They do. Well, but Randy, stop and think. If you, if the FBI agent came to you and interviewed you and you lied, you're committing a felony. What is it when the president of the United States, the vice president, wantonly lied to the people and perpetuate a fraud that cost over 3,000 American lives and hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives? If that is not criminal, I don't know what the definition of criminality is. Yeah, I don't either. And I'll tell you something else. Even on things that aren't so, uh, you know, hellish like uh, you know, issues of war, which war is absolute hell, which is why you get Omar Bradley coming back from it saying uh, war is hell. Never do it. Everybody that's ever fought a war has said, never do it. If you've ever done it, you'll know not to do it. You'll work every angle you can to keep the peace because it's disgusting. It's hell. You'll never be the same. Your kids will never be the same. The country is never the same. The world is never the same. So don't do it. You know, everybody that's ever done it has said, my advice, don't do it. But what do you do when the National uh, Archives can't do oversight, when the White House security people can't do oversight? We don't. It's because we tolerate politics as usual. And I'll tell you, look at the Democratic candidates. They're going to give you the same old crap, only a little softer. And, and, and until we rear up and say, hey, there is no answer but to empower the American people, we're all looking to leaders on the white horse. There are no leaders. The only people of courage are the American people themselves, and they've been hoodwinked into this. We need to change our culture. The military-industrial complex owns the government lock, stock, and barrel. 
and they have militarized our culture so that we accept this stuff. Dwight Eisenhower said it. Boy, the way you're going to lose democracy is by the military-industrial complex, and that's exactly what's happening. And so for us to say, well, we're going to get the Democrats elected, we're going to have a Democratic president, none of this will work. It will be more of the same, more subtly. What we, we can, I've had one person tell me, my God, Gravel, don't rail against Bush, because maybe he's made it so mad for the first time in American history that people will stand up and say, we've had enough with partisanship. We've had enough with politics as usual, and we want fundamental change. And the only fundamental change that counts is to empower the people as lawmakers, to make them partners with their elected officials, and they automatically become the senior partners. You know, I, I, I mean, to me, this all sounds correct and right, and I understand, you know, not just the farewell speech by Eisenhower where he said, you know, we would lose democracy. He also said we would lose our morality. He said we would lose everything that was great about America if this military-industrial complex uh, kept on pervading our society because when he came, there wasn't one, and when he left, there was one, and he saw it. He was a brilliant man. He, he understood what we were facing. But tell me, you know, with the with the campaign financing the way it is and having to depend on all these contractors and depend on all these defense uh, industries and having to depend on uh, oil conglomerate, you know, all the money, all the money that it takes to run for the presidency. How in the hell are we going to I mean, you know, isn't the better all we can do it? Just let me give you one example, okay. Randy. Uh, I have a presence in Northern California, primarily through the Harvey Milk Club in San Francisco and the likes of a Patrick Taylor and a Maxine Dugan and John Emery, who are out doing their own thing. I give them no directions, and yet they're doing the vital thing to advance my campaign. And in Southern California, Mindy Iden and these two kids that did these spots for me. If the America, if there's enough people out there that want to care for change, they've just got to go work their, well, they got to work, go work it off. Because what, what really, I'm doing the best I can. And I alter, I offer an alternative, not only to be president, but to empower the people in a partnership working on our own governance. Yo, this is from Arrested Development. And right now you're in the midst of a celebration. A celebration of life. There are lots of ways to communicate with the show, and I encourage you to do so. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, send emails direct to me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Cause see, I know the type know They the got type. Trump, they what? got guns And yes, what? they want to fight And they see a young couple having a time that's good time And good. the Eagles want to test their brother's manhood So they came to test speech cause uh. of my heritage And the loud bright colors that I wear Boom. I was a target cause uh-huh. I'm a fashion misfit. misfit And the outfit that I'm wearing brothers dissonant
On the line with us, Ralph Nader, the star of uh, An Unreasonable Man, the new documentary, his newest book, The 17 Traditions, and of course, in, in my opinion, a great American hero, a man I voted for once for president. And, 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 and didn't once. <laughs> We've had that discussion before. And, and uh, a man who has transformed the landscape of America, I think, vastly for the better. Uh, Ralph Nader, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to, so glad to have you with us. One of the things that you've been talking about recently is Mike Gravel's do, uh, National Initiative for Democracy. You, do you mind getting into this a little bit? Yes, I mean, that is a remarkable position he's taken, and he's thought about it for years in consultation with some of the nation's leading constitutional law professors. And what he's uh, asserting is that the people in this country are really constitutionally authorized, rooted in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and uh, statements in the Federalist Papers to write their own laws. What was lacking is procedures for implementing this direct democracy national initiative authority. And he has proposed a uh, several thousand word um, uh, proposal uh, to see that the discussion during the presidential campaign is on such fundamentals and not simply on slogans and uh, pontifications and uh, promises meant to uh, be broken. I've never seen or read about a presidential candidate from the major parties um, offer such a fundamental uh, change in our constitutional uh, system mm-hmm. in terms of the power of the people. Yeah, and I've read it, and I've read your writings on it, and I've, I've interviewed Mike Gravel uh, oh, about once a year for the last five years. He's been on our radio program. And here's my concern. First of all, to take this from the abstract to the practical for our listeners who may not know exactly what we're talking about here. In 20-some-odd states, I think it's 21 states, have uh, a system on the books, uh, laws on the books, that allow individual citizens, if they can hit a certain threshold number of petitions, uh, petition signatures, to put something on the ballot to become law, to amend the constitution of a state or to become a law for the state. And, uh, for example, the, the probably the most famous is Prop 13 in, in, in uh, California that froze property taxes years ago. And... Uh, and then many other states, the majority of the other states in the United States, don't have that, and the only way that a law can be passed is through the legislature. And what this is essentially suggesting is that at a national level, we all be able to participate in, in an initiative process. That is, if, if, if a certain minimum threshold of people can get something on a national ballot, that it show up during the national elections and we can all become legislators. Do I have it right? Uh, not quite. Uh, unlike the state uh, referendum or initiative authorities, the uh, state legislatures uh, have a lot of uh, restrictive controls, and, and they can, for example, repeal what the people vote for, or they can make the initiative process run through hoops, or make the number of signatures uh, very onerous. Uh, what uh, Mike Gravel is proposing is a national initiative uh, authority that the Congress cannot touch. And it's an authority that doesn't qualify for the ballot. It it either wins a majority of registered voters or it doesn't. So it's not a two-step process. Mm -hmm. And and finally, what's uh, most important uh, about it is that uh, 
the arguments you can make against it. Well, you know, uh, there'll be a proposal and the companies will load the media and distort it. Well, if the people have the national initiative, Tom, they can change the media. They can open up uh, public media. They can uh, change uh, the problems and turn them into solutions. So it's much more fundamental than the state initiatives that you referred to. But the, the, for example, I live in Oregon right now, which is a state which has an initiative process. Mm. And we have seen a series of right-wing crackpot initiatives that have been passed as a result of what I would call uh, pretty straightforward misleading advertising. And it wasn't funded by big corporations. In one case, it was funded by a guy who lives in Las Vegas who describes himself as a sexual hypnotist. And in another case, by a, a real estate billionaire from Chicago. Uh, you know, basically conservative activists who are trying these things out in smaller states and then, you know, when they're successful, rolling them out to larger states. And so how, in, with a national program like this, do you keep somebody like, you know, one of the Walton heirs who have more money than God from influencing this? You have a national initiative that prevents private funding of national initiatives. They can be funded by uh, a public trust fund. Um, that can be uh, funded in turn by uh, a tax on uh, speculation in the spot stock markets or a tax on pollution. Uh, and it can require uh, access, uh, equal time access to the mass media. That's what I mean about the national initiative that Mike Gravel is proposing. That you can list one objection after another, but the initiative can override that objection and uh, plant the uh, power of the people uh, further and firmer in direct democracy. Also, there's a civic maturation aspect to it. As more people uh, understand and participate in writing these laws, you have a much more deliberative democracy, uh, much more discussion and debate. It affects the candidates for electoral office at uh, all levels of government. And um, it's, it's the way to go. Uh, obviously, uh, we have seen some pretty bad decisions made by representative government uh, in state capitals, uh, city councils, and, and the national legislature. Right. The war in Iraq, for example, would never have occurred if we had a national initiative process. We would never have this inequitable tax system. Uh, where the rich get away with it, and the corporations can go to the Bahamas if there is a national initiative. And uh, the national initiative would also be authorized to amend the Constitution. So, the, for example, the, one of the biggest objections to this typically is the First Amendment. You know, you can't limit the spending of, for example, you know, the rich guy in Chicago, the real estate billionaire who wants to influence the initiative process here in Oregon. You can't do that because, you know, even, I mean, arguably you could with a corporation, although corporations argue that they're persons, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, but with an individual, I mean, yes, that's an individual, and the Supreme Court has ruled that the First Amendment uh, prohibition against restrictions on free speech is particularly important when it comes to political free speech. And you're suggesting that, for example, we could amend the Constitution to say that laws like they have in the United Kingdom, where you can't give more than a, you know, a or not can't give a, a political candidate can't spend more than a hundred thousand pounds when they're running for for Parliament. Period, regardless of the source. And therefore, or, you know, or there could be a national initiative that says. All public elections shall be funded with public money, just like public parks funded by public money, public mm -hmm. schools by public money, and no private money is permitted. And uh, there could also be uh, part of the amendment 
that to prohibit corporations who are not real people, the entity I'm talking about, the corporate entity, from participating in politics or lobbying in any shape uh, whatsoever. Right. But how do you get around the Supreme Court and the First Amendment? Because you amend the Constitution. That overrides the Supreme Court uh, decision that money is speech. But the amendment process, process for the Constitution is spelled out in the Constitution, and it doesn't include the National Initiative. Yeah, but the National Initiative can change the amendment process to uh, provide a role for the National Initiative in amending the Constitution. So this can be done without a constitutional convention, in other words? Well, they can change the Constitution in that manner. Basically, it's uh, the sovereignty of the people um, being reduced to, to a printed proposal and put out there on the presidential campaigns for next year for discussion and debate among the people, whether it's in their living rooms or in uh, taverns or in uh, uh, general stores or parks or town meetings or whatever. I mean, the, the point is to have a discussion about it. Yeah. Well, I think it's fascinating. And, 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 you know, one of the things that I always find fascinating about you, Ralph Nader, is that you're you're a guy who lives with ideas you 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 love ideas you you you've developed some of the most potent ideas and uh in in our time and 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 you know been a in many ways a powerful truth teller for all of us i'm curious what other things are catching your fancy right now what are the in the political landscape what are the things that you're finding fascinating well uh, it's the corporate hijacking of our government you see the principal representative government by our founding fathers was based on an understanding that once uh, Thomas Jefferson articulated when he says the principle of representative government is to, quote, counteract the excesses of the moneyed interests, unquote, so the moneyed interests today are the corporate interests. And so we don't have a representative government as was uh, foreseen over 200 years ago. We have a corporate government. We have a corporate government uh, that has hijacked our national government in the service of corporate profits and corporate policies and corporate executive compensation and corporate uh, command of uh, agencies, departments, and and our electoral process. So we have a real crisis here, and that's why we've got to go back uh, to the only source of sovereignty uh, that uh, is, uh, is, is something that we treasure in our country. And most people talk about the sovereignty of the people. Are those just mealy-mouthed words, or do they have a constitutional uh, basis, as well as in the first juridical document uh, of our country, which is the Declaration of Independence? Yeah, I think you'll agree with me, though, that Mike Gravel's suggestion, the National Initiative for Democracy, is a a real long shot. Do you have uh, any other thoughts on ways that this might be accomplished? Um. Well, it won't be accomplished until unless people want it. I mean, that's the beauty of his proposal. Nobody's going to impose a national initiative on the people of the United States. <laughs> uh, the corporations don't, don't want it. Uh, the politicians don't want it. So if it does occur, it's because enough people have said our country's going in the wrong direction. Seriously, 71% in the latest poll believe that. Um, the promise of our country is not being paralleled with its performance. Our national standards of living are being degraded with these uh, globalized uh, corporate trade agreements, uh, pull-down agreements, and on and on. And and that's what's so wonderful about this proposal. It cannot be instituted without uh, the the, uh, majority support of the uh, voters in this country. Mm -hmm. 
And and what about, for example, the the movement to end corporate personhood, to to strip corporations of the uh, you know, they claim that this uh, 1886 Supreme Court decision gave corporations the rights of persons under the 14th Amendment. It didn't, in fact, although the headnote says that it did. And and the court has quoted that headnote now 37 times, I think. Uh, there, there, there's quite a growing movement across the United States, to and a number of over 100 communities now in Pennsylvania from, from Seldef's work to stop the right of, of persons to going to corporations. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a mess we've gotten ourselves into. I mean, the only people who should be able to lobby are real people. The only people who should be able to engage in electioneering are real people. The only people who uh, make decisions in this country should be real people, not an artificial entity called a multinational corporation or corporations. And the idea of having equal justice under the law between you and General Motors or you and Exxon or you and Citibank it's absurd. How can we give these corporations, as we have, all the constitutional rights that we have, except for the first, uh, Fifth Amendment right of self-incrimination? They have all the constitutional rights we have, and they have all the privileges and immunities to concentrate power and technology and political influence that none of us as individual human beings could ever amass and expect to live in a society of equal justice under law. We would, would we give constitutional uh, rights to robots? Let's say you had a robot that actually produced products and sold products. It was all computerized. Would we say to that robot, you can have great influence over Congress, you can give all kinds of money through your robotic arms uh, to senators and representatives and presidential candidates, <laughs> and you, you can have a say as so whether we go to war or not? Uh, how, how, how little you're being taxed compared to working people, on and on. Of course we wouldn't. So the but we have. Yeah, but yeah, we have to be corporate entity. Right. That's right. And, and, and that's, but if it was a robot, in other words, if it looked a little robotic like mm-hmm. us, yeah. uh, we would say, this is crazy. Yeah. But instead, it's an abstract, it's a legal abstraction called the corporate entity, which is, uh, created not by investors. Investors do not create corporations. They just fund them. The corporations chartered mostly by state governments and one and in the banking area and some other areas by the federal government. So corporations are creatures of our government, and that charter can be conditioned in any way, shape, and manner uh, to, to make sure that corporations, which once were chartered in the early 19th century in Massachusetts to be our servants, uh, uh, and they're now our masters, revert back to the original concept, which is the corporations to be our servant, not our master. And uh, nobody knows more about this than you, Tom, because you've written books and articles about it. <laughs> and, and, and you've been working on this your entire life. I, uh, it's uh, something close to both of us. Ralph Nader, consumer advocate, lawyer, author of, most recently, The 17 Traditions, star of the movie, the documentary, An Unreasonable Man. Ralph Nader, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, and I hope you'll, you'll read the 17 Traditions, especially Young Families, because it's about how my mother and father raised their four children in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And it's just full of wisdom and insight, humor, ad- advice. It's very relevant uh, to families today trying to figure out how to control things around them uh, better than uh, they are at the present time. Something we very much need. Ralph Nader, thanks so, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. I want to take you far. Tethers of the scene. Sorry.
show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show, and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Senator Obama, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. At the second Republican presidential debate this season, uh, the biggest applause lines of the night included Mitt Romney's proposal to double Guantanamo and the moderator's use of the word waterboarding. In a uh, what seems to me to be kind of a bloodthirsty country right now, how does it how does a Democrat win the White House while we've got two well, two wars? I, on? I don't think that's reflective of the country. It may be reflective of uh, some partisan Republicans, but uh, I think. As I travel around Iowa and New Hampshire and states uh, throughout the Union, uh, people are deeply concerned about the loss of American prestige in the world. Uh, they recognize that Iraq has been an enormous uh, strategic blunder and that if we're going to restore uh, our standing in the world and allow us, which will allow us to do a much better job in fighting uh, terrorist cells around the around the world, and we're going to have to reverse course. We're going to have to get our troops out of Iraq. We need to shut Guantanamo down uh, and apply due process to those who we've detained. If they're dangerous, then we need to lock them up. Uh, but we've got federal prisons to do that, and we've got uh, legal mechanisms that can ensure uh, they're getting the due process that is consonant with who we are as a people. Uh, it's the America that held the Nuremberg trials. It's the America that stood for human rights and has disdained methods like torture uh, as a way of promoting its policies. And that, I think, is what uh, Americans all across the country are looking for, both thoughtful Republicans and independents as well as Democrats. Are you troubled that um, we, we have been willing, as a nation, at least this, the, the administration has been willing to jettison traditions like habeas corpus, these things that are so fundamental to who we think of ourselves as, um, as Americans? Uh, look, at the, uh, the, the war against uh, terrorist uh, cells that are, are genuine threats to our security and our safety it is a battle primarily of not only military and intelligence, but also uh, our ability to persuade people that uh, we represent uh, their aspirations, we represent their dreams. It's a battle for hearts and minds. And, uh, you know, there's a military role to play. Uh, we need to hunt down those who are seeking to do us harm and that we probably will never persuade uh, to lay down arms. But we also have to uh, make sure that uh, those groups are isolated not only here in the United States, but uh, throughout the world, and particularly in the Muslim world. And when we see things like Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo uh, detentions, then 
what we're doing is we're feeding the flames of uh, anti-Americanism that ultimately will make us less secure. Senator, on the issue of Iraq, do you believe that having foreign troops, mostly American troops, in Iraqi streets, uh, to a certain extent precludes political progress and political stabilization there? I think that uh, the Iraqi government has to get a clear signal, as do major players in the region, uh, like Iran and Syria, that we're not going to be there in perpetuity. Uh, We are not going to be able to arbitrate a civil war. And the only leverage we have to get the various factions in Iraq to start taking seriously the need for political accommodation as opposed to simply maneuvering uh, under the umbrella of American forces is to begin withdrawing our troops. And that's why in January I introduced legislation that would begin, would have begun a, a phase withdrawal starting two weeks ago uh, and would have the goal of getting all our combat troops out by March 31st of next year. A majority of the Senate and the House support that concept, uh, but we're still short. Uh, we need 16 more votes in the Senate and a comparable number in the House uh, to bring this thing to an end. Do you think it's possible to get them in the, within this year? I do. Uh, you know, I think uh, it was interesting to note the 11 uh, hawkish Republicans who visited uh, the president last week and sent a clear message to him that they're starting to feel the political heat. We need to ratchet up that political heat so that they recognize it's in their interest to change course. What do you think is the most likely way that our large-scale involvement in Iraq will end? Do you think that the Congress um, is going to be the is going to be the, the the start of the end in Iraq? Do you think that the president himself will have to have a change of heart? I don't think the president's going to change his mind. I think that uh, they are dug in. They uh, have shown no inclination to actually listen to uh, objective observers on the ground. Uh, I think that. They would like to defer and delay uh, an exit until the next president uh, so that they can claim that uh, they didn't lose Iraq. Uh, But uh, I think that it's important for us to make sure that my Republican colleagues in the Congress recognize there there will be a price to pay to prolonging uh, the blunders that have been made in Iraq. In case you're just joining us, our guest is Senator Barack Obama today. Uh, Senator Obama, in your view, what's the what's the difference? What's the philosophical difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party today? Well, I think the Republican Party right now uh, is bereft of ideas and moving the country forward. And uh, I think that a lot of Republicans recognize that, which is why you know, there hasn't been much enthusiasm. And when you saw the Republican debates, they kept on talking about Ronald Reagan. Uh, ignoring uh, the fact that they largely controlled Washington for the last uh, six years, six and a half years. And so uh, I think the, the, the major difference, the major argument that we're having right now in this country, uh, which, by the way, I don't think neatly aligns between Republicans and Democrats because there are a lot of Republicans who are, I think, feeling alienated from their own party, mm. is do we believe in a government that is competent uh, that expresses our common values, uh, our belief in equal opportunity, our belief in upward mobility, our belief uh, in a safety net for those who are vulnerable, uh, versus those who believe that uh, each of us are on their own uh, and that uh, the market is king and 
there's no room for government to play a constructive role in both making our economy more uh, productive and dealing with environmental degradation uh, in assuring that every child gets a decent education and making sure that everybody has basic health care. And that, I think, is the major fault line uh, in terms of domestic policy. Internationally, uh, I think the fault line is uh, those who believe that uh, we are an empire that can act unilaterally and disregard what uh, others around the world think. Uh, and those of us who believe that our safety and security is bound up with uh, a identification on the part of people around the world to a common set of international rules and uh, human rights that uh, assure that all people uh, have some opportunity to live decent lives. And on both those issues, the international issues that we're facing as well as the domestic issues we're facing. I think that uh, we're going to see a pendulum swing. It started last November uh, in electing uh, a majority Democratic Congress. Uh, It will be completed if we do our job in this upcoming presidential election. Senator Obama, a lot has been made of the fact that um, you could potentially appeal both to Republican and Democratic voters in the general election. When people talk about your electability, that's one of the things uh, they go to almost immediately. Um, do you think that's true? And, and if so, why do you think that's true? Well, I, you know, I, I was able to, to get a lot of Republican votes and independent votes in uh, my race for the U.S. Senate in Illinois. And it wasn't because I didn't have a progressive track record. Uh, I'm consistently uh, considered one of the more progressive uh, legislators in the U.S. Senate and was somebody who worked on things like racial profiling and uh, expanding health care for children and reforming our death penalty uh, when I was in the state Senate. But I think a lot of it has to do with tone. Uh, You know, the question that all of us as Democrats have to remind ourselves is is how do we broaden our coalition and you know we generally make a mistake I think when we vilify the other side uh, or seem to indicate a lack of regard for sort of middle America uh, when we speak to them in, in an even tone about our common values and our common ideals uh, and are respectful of those even who have differences with us on one or two hot-button issues, then I think that people are open to our arguments. And that's, I think, the approach that we're going to have to take if we're ultimately going to be successful, not just in eking out uh, an election victory, but actually putting together the kind of broad-based majorities that we're going to need in order to set up universal health care in this country or have a significant uh, energy and environmental agenda to deal with climate change. When you inevitably get called a liberal um, for, further on in the campaign, uh, hopefully in the general election campaign, if you become the party's nominee, how will you respond to that as a when it's leveled at you as an epithet? Well, you know, obviously there's been a lot of uh, investment made in in running down the liberal ideal, but the truth is is that what is now called liberalism uh, it, are a set of values that uh, were expressed by the founders of the Republican Party, like Abraham Lincoln. Hmm the belief that everybody should have an opportunity, that government shouldn't just work for the wealthy and the powerful, that we respect civil liberties, that we respect civil rights. Uh, you know, those, those are American values. 
not liberal or conservative values. And I think that for us to return to those common traditions that are best in us is something that the American people are hungry for. You seem to float onto the floor. Democratic Convention 2004. I never wanted anybody more than I wanted you. So I put down my carry sign. Knew I had to make you mine. My black and sexy, you're so fine. Cause I got a crush on you. Day protest. Tell us about what you're going to do there, Senator. Well, what we want is to, first of all, honor the sacredness of Memorial Day itself and our honoring of the troops on that day, the men and women who've served this country patriotically uh, over the years and, and specifically now in Iraq. Uh, and what we've asked people to do is to do it in the most dignified way possible, but to, to speak out in support of the troops, to honor their service, and the most effective way to do that is to speak out for ending this war and bringing our troops home. Well, I, t- I got to tell you, Senator, there's a, plenty of people who think the only way to end this war is to put the right Democratic president in place, and more and more people are lining up around the idea that you're that person. I mean, look, you got a candidate out there running in the primaries that s- still is unable to say, you know, I might have made a mistake when I made that vote. I w- won't apologize. People appreciate your apology. They say, okay, he's moving on now. He's going to get us out of here. Uh, isn't isn't that really the crux of the issue? As long we we can have a democratic Congress, we can have democratic senators, but at the end of the day, if we have a president that's going to veto any effort to end this war, it doesn't mean anything, does it? Well, a, a democratic president can end this war and can end it immediately. Uh, but in the interim, I think it is important for Americans to be heard, and that's why we're asking people to to go out and speak up and and uh, make it clear that the president is completely ignoring the will of the country, and also make it clear to the leaders in Congress that that uh, they need to have backbone. They need to stand up and be strong and stand their ground. Well, just like, Ro- just like Ted Roosevelt said, there's some, that, that's where patriotism is really found, isn't it, in, in dissent? Oh, it, patriotism is found in having the courage to speak up for what's right, uh, whether it's in dissent or in support, whichever it is. It's not standing by quietly. And uh, and allowing uh, bad things to happen, particularly something this serious. I mean, Martin Luther King said uh, over 40 years ago in his famous speech at Riverside Church that uh, silence is betrayal when there are big issues facing the country. He was speaking then about the war in Vietnam. 
But let me shift gears. I'm hearing that the thing that I'm we're seeing in blogosphere that we hear it on this show all the time is that people get the impression you've really taken the gloves off this time. Uh, you, you have taken the gloves off, haven't you? Oh, I'm I'm going to stand strong and firm for what I believe. That's simple, and it'll be it'll be clear. I think to everybody and everything I do, whether it's uh, ending the war in Iraq, universal health care, uh, attacking global warming, standing up for the poor and ending poverty. I mean, I intend to say as forcefully as I am able what I believe. Well, i got to tell you, the, the poverty issue, let me talk about that just a second. There's plenty of cultural critics that say that America is so selfish, America has become so narcissistic and self-centered, that they don't, they're not buying into this, that you have the baby 60s, baby boomer generation. They're concerned more about tax cuts, more about their health care, their education, their pensions. And they say that the, the, the poverty issue doesn't take hold, but you're out there talking to people. You're seeing firsthand. Tell me whether they're wrong or right about that. I think they're wrong. I think you see, saw that they were wrong in the way the country responded to the hurricane hitting New Orleans, not the government. Lord knows the government was a mess. But the country responded uh, amazingly with contributions and volunteering and everything else. And I, what I sense is people feel, particularly post-Katrina and what they've seen in New Orleans, people feel a moral responsibility to give a chance for people to be able to help themselves who are struggling every day. Yeah, I, I think of George Clooney's statement about his frustration about an issue like Darfur, and when you really follow what he was saying about why he can't get America's attention, it is that it's almost as if uh, this self-centered this self-centered notion of who we are as Americans has is, is too entrenched. And I'm glad to hear that you're going to stay at that, because it's an important issue, isn't it? It is, and that it's, we need a president of the United States who asks Americans to be patriotic about something other than war, that asks Americans to take, take responsibility and take action. And you think about the great movements that have occurred in American history in my lifetime. It was the Civil Rights Movement, the anti-war movement to end the war in Vietnam. It was stopping this apartheid regime in South Africa, ending it. And now I think the same thing's happening on the war in Iraq, and we need people to step up and take action. We need to have, have a president that calls on people to do that. i got a prediction. It's going to be you and Mitt Romney uh, in the race, and you're going to be faced with a guy who is uh, worth, what is it, uh, a quarter of a billion dollars. He's you got, know, it's, he's it's, got it's, some cash. It's unbelievable. I see the Wall Street Journal covering the issue, uh, covering, this, covering the economic issue, and really missing the fact that the the real issue is that Giuliani comes into the comes into uh, uh, this race as you know, before before he was in charge of in New York he wasn't he was worth a million dollars he comes out now he's worth thirteen million dollars you've got you you now have Mitt Romney worth a quarter of a billion dollars and they want to talk about your connection to a hedge fund isn't that typical of of what's happening now? Well, they just it's all about distraction. That's all it is. I mean, the truth of the matter is. What really matters at the end of the day is what are, what are you dedicated to and what have you dedicated your life to? You know, in my case, it's pretty straightforward. You can see it since the last election when I wasn't in office. I mean, I've been uh, leading minimum wage campaigns around the of country, course. helping organize thousands of workers into unions, doing humanitarian work in Africa. I mean, I'm proud of what I've been doing over the last few years, and I think that's the best sign of, of what you really believe. Okay, so rank the issues. What is it you have to connect with, with the American public? Uh, I, how, how do you rank it? Iraq, health care, uh, union, labor, uh, rebuilding the labor movement in America. W where do you see it? Well, those things are connected. I would say the war in Iraq, ending the war in Iraq. How do you do it? What's the quickest way to do that? 
the quickest way to end the war? Yes. To start taking troops out. <laughs> as, long as, as long as this president is in office, the best way for Congress to do it is to continue to submit uh, funding bills for the troops that have a timetable for withdrawal. Stand the ground on that. Health care. Where do you go with it? What's the quickest way to have, have middle America, you know, people are working three jobs now just to, just to make ends meet that can't afford health care. How do you solve it? Universal health care. It was the only thing that's going to solve. It's going to bring costs down for everybody. It'll cover everybody. It'll fill in the cracks, which means no pre-existing conditions. Mental health care treated the same as physical health care. And we're going to help subsidize the cost of health care for everybody. As the rest of the world does. Absolutely. Certainly developed the world. It's clearly what we need. Uh, labor in America. You agree? I think I've heard you say you've got to have labor strong again in America because everybody runs on the coattail of that. The, 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 every, everybody that may not be labor, but they benefit when you have a strong labor movement in this country. How do you, how do you rebuild the labor movement? Well, first, it's important for Americans to understand from the president that the organized labor movement helped build the middle class in this country. It's one of the reasons we have such a strong middle class, and you're dead right. The way to strengthen and grow the middle class, the way to lift millions of people out of poverty, is to strengthen the ability to organize, which means comprehensive labor law reform, a more level playing field, more democracy in the workplace. And what that does ultimately is not just do something for the unions. What it does is it does something for the economic security of America and for the middle class. Global warming. At last, it's on everybody's screen. People see it. They, they know that it's not just an ancillary issue. It's a real issue. What, do you, wh what are the problems? What do we do about it? It's a crisis. We're going to see migration. If we don't change things, we're going to see over the next 50 to 70 years migration of millions of people, not enough food, not enough water. Here's what I think we should do. I think we ought to cap carbon emissions in America. We ought to reduce them by 80% by the year 2050. Below the cap, we ought to auction off the right to emit any carbon uh, in this country. We ought to use that money to transform the way we use energy, clean, renewable sources of energy, an investment in uh, carbon sequestration technology, an investment in making sure union workers build the most fuel-efficient vehicles uh, in the world here in the United States of America, decentralize the way we provide electricity, ask the, have the president ask Americans to be willing uh, to conserve, those are the things we need to do. Well, i got to tell you something. The reason I went down that list is most people, the last polls that I saw, the last numbers I saw on this, is most Democrats that are listening to find out what candidates stand for. What does Hillary stand for? What does Obama stand for? They don't know what they stand for on almost every one of those issues. And you think, you think there is a distinction between what you're trying to do as a candidate and what your senior competition do? Yes, I do. I think I am. Uh, more aggressive about the war in Iraq, and, I, and it was all, with all due respect, more aggressive about the war in Iraq, the only candidate with a specific universal health care plan, the most aggressive global warming plan, and I think the only candidate with a plan to end poverty in this country. Senator, will you please take your gloves off this time? I will please, fight please, with everything I got. Please do that. You'll have a lot of people behind you on it. Senator, I appreciate it. Good luck out there, okay? Thank you. Appreciate you. Talk to
There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. Aren't you afraid that they're going to cut you out of the debates? I mean, I was so glad. Oh, no, Randy, they're not going to cut me out of the debates. I'm there. Not only that, stop and think, and I've embarrassed the national media, and I'm going to do more of it, and that is that they measure the corruption in our society by how much money is in politics, and then they turn around and anoint those they think should be president because they've collected the most money. They, they are picking the people who are the most corrupt in our society. It's that simple. Hillary Clinton with her millions and Obama with his millions and the others with his millions, they're sold out to the establishment, and that establishment is the military-industrial complex. So the only thing that we can do is a grassroots presidency? I mean, you That's know. right. What you're doing right now, what you're doing right now is, is helping me get my name out there, helping people focus on the issues, and then say there is an alternative. And that, that's it. That beats, I'll tell you, that will beat the money they raise because by the time we're done, we'll take all these millions that they that they've raised and put it around their neck like a millstone because it's proof they've sold out. That's the criteria of what people hear. That person's got raised twenty, thirty million. He's a sellout. Don't vote for him. That's the standard we should begin to raise right across this country, and it will work. The American people are fed up. Well, they are fed up, but they really have no idea how to change things. I mean, I, I can't... On election day, they could go vote. Now, all we've got to do is hope that there's a lot of people out there trying to correct the electoral system, which has been fraudulently manipulated for the benefit. George Bush stole the 2000 election and stole the 4000 election. And, that, and now we have enough people that are rising up with vigilance and not going to let them do it the next time around, either paper ballots or a paper trail. That, but, you see, it's a citizenship now we won't have uh, the majority's not going to rise up right now because they've been uh, truthfully they've been brainwashed by this white house and the and the the compliant media the compliant media which only rests on commercialism stop and think about five key individuals in contro- in this country control what the american people will will acquire in terms of information Oh, it's my life. I've been doing this for for years, and and I have I know exactly what the media landscape is, and I know exactly why you are you know greeted with a brick wall, even though you've made them lots of money, even though they like you as a person, even though you know you're successful. They say you know quite frankly, we have too much business in front of Congress, and uh, the business is worth a lot more than you could ever make. <laughs> That's right. That, that's what they tell you, and and they're not even shy about it. We have business in front of Congress. We have broadband. We have spectrum. We have more deregulation, and we won't have anything get in the way of our business in front of Congress. Because even if you made us a billion dollars, it wouldn't be worth 
what we need to, what we can make if Congress rules in our favor. And that's, you know, people don't get that. They don't understand that there are five, I, I call it the, get this, Randy. I call it like the heads of the five families. <laughs> people, but people get this. They thirst for empowerment. They don't know the details of it, but they thirst for it. And if we could make the people aware that there is legislation that they control, that they vote for, that empowers them and makes them equal. In fact, more than equal, they become the senior partners with officialdom of government. And so if the people can acquire control of their government by becoming lawmakers, I'll tell you, the people will be able to solve all the problems. And they're not perfect. They'll make mistakes. But when they make mistakes, they can correct it. When, when representative government makes mistakes, they don't correct it because they don't feel the pain and they can't admit they made a mistake because it'll be used against them. That's not the case with the American people. We've got to have, there's only two venues for change. The government where the problem lies and the people. You have no choice but to go to the people and, and have enough confidence that they can do it if they're given the proper tool. And that's what the National Initiative for Democracy is all about. Yeah, I know, I know, and I and I believe you're right. I know you're right. I worry about the media, and I know how how tightly held it is. I know how stories die every single day. I watch the news be canceled every day. It freaks me out. I do my very best to put you know uh, places where people can go and and research and and articles and whatever. But you know, if it's not on TV, I'm on radio, and believe me, I, I'm I'm here to tell you, if it's not on TV, it didn't happen. It just right. didn't right. happen. And the TV is the most superficial facet of our information. And it's yeah. like a, there's a whole monitor there that just stands and goes, no, not this story, no, not that story, no, not that story. It's incredible because the corporations vet the stories uh, in their best interest. They say, <laughs> this story will hurt us with a congressman so-and-so or senator such-and-such, <laughs> and we're not airing it because we have business in front of his committee. That's what goes on. They've dumbed down. They've dumbed down. Can I ask you a, a purely political country? And the worst of it is the Rupert Murdoch of the world. Well, there's more than just him. Believe me. Oh, I mean, there is. No, no. He he's the kingfish of it. The oh no. There, he's, he's the one that invented that killing news. He he actually invented killing news and and high graphics and simple stories and sound bites only and just you know if you put the right thing behind a person's head then people feel patriotic about him and if everybody oh, yeah. on the TV wears a flag pin, then we get more, you know, they still have less viewers than we have listeners. And, and the same could be said for CNN and all of all the cable news channels have less viewers than we have listeners. But, if but it's, you have listeners, Randy. But what I'm saying is, is, if it's wild. not, but if it's not it, on the TV, or, it didn't happen. That's the whole that's point. OK, but you, you just keep fighting. I, we, we cannot de develop an attitude that we can that we cannot win. We can win. You win by fighting. If you can stop and think how terrible it was during the Revolutionary War, during the Civil War, the, we can win. We just have to keep fighting for our rights. And uh, and I'll tell you, they may their power may look overwhelming, but it can be overwhelmed, and we can do it by empowering the American people. Well, that's what I do every day. I believe that that's true. Or else I, I would for have. Doing it. Well, I, for doing it. No, you too. I mean, honestly, if we weren't around and we weren't talking to people, this is the reason why I know it's important and it's resonating is because when people saw you, even you know when I saw you. 
and I knew you were going to be there, and I told everybody, watch this guy. When I saw you, I, I just, you know, it's funny because you were on the TV, so therefore it was happening that somebody <laughs> would. Right. right, you're right. You see right. what I mean? And I just, I, I played all of your sound bites from that, the, for, I do them from every debate, because it's, it's, you need a guy who is suddenly co equal with all the other nine podiums standing there saying, you people scare me. Do you know? <laughs> and they do. And they, they do. do. I know, I know. Well, Brandy, I'll tell you that I'm going to be there for all the debates. I hope so. And, and what you're seeing is just the beginning. Uh, thank you for being here. You, um, you got some momentum last week on your uh, movement to impeach uh, Cheney. Congratulations. Uh, what's an update there? People have to call their member of Congress. Here's, here's the concern I have. How do we uphold our Constitution if the, if the individuals who hold the highest offices are not held accountable? And what is this message for future presidents? We're lowering the bar on ethics and, and, and abiding by law for those in the highest office. What would the next president of the United States think if these president, if this president and vice president have not been held accountable for taking us into an illegal war, which resulted in a catastrophe for this nation and Iraq? The next president would think they could, you know, he or she could do anything. Well, I plan on being that next president to establish a high moral tone. But what are these other candidates saying about where they think the the bar should be. I think the people who hold the highest office in the land have the highest responsibility to uphold the highest morality, to uphold the highest traditions of our country, not the lowest traditions, not the lowest morality. And so more and more people are joining this impeachment effort. More and more communities have become involved. More and more legislatures and or, or state organizations are, are voicing support for it. I think it's only a matter of time before Mr. Cheney is held accountable, and then once we've uh, dealt with Mr. Cheney, uh, then uh, uh, we know who the next person is. Um, the reason I do my thing on the Internet, and the reason that I'm here, I traveled uh, 10 hours yesterday to see you, is because I'm a father. And I'm worried that the country that my daughter and son are going to inherit is going to be... Um okay, truth be told, right here, I was kind of struck dumb. Uh, I was kind of choked up a little bit thinking about my children and the world that they are going to inherit as they come of age in this global war on terror. 
question that I was going to try to ask the congressman went something like this. Um, Congressman, the reason I do my internet show is out of a sense of responsibility to my children, seven and five. I'm horrified by what America is doing to their future. What can you do to turn it around? Um, what can you do to turn that around for us? Uh, Davis, Thanks. I talked to many parents who, uh, and fathers who, like yourself, are wondering what kind of world are, are we preparing for our children? Uh, when we have policies as a government, which um, where we go and attack other countries, like we did in Iraq, kill a million innocent civilians, you just—it's mind-boggling when you think what the consequences could be for our children. I think about that all the time. That's why I believe that the only approach that we can use is to work to achieve security through peace. See, those who think that you can achieve security through policies of preemption and unilateralism are absolutely wrong. Because what we do is the more that we separate ourselves from the world community, the greater danger our children's future will, uh, uh, will, will experience. And so what I intend to do as president, mindful of the damage that our country's already done, seek to close the gaps and and heal our relations with other countries. It, we have to have a process of truth and reconciliation in our own country first. We have to tell the truth about what happened. A lot of these candidates running for president don't want to hold Mr. Cheney and Mr. Bush accountable. What they did was criminal. Mr. They should both be impeached. Mr. Cheney, there's a bill in to impeach Mr. Cheney, and this isn't about them personally. This is about our Constitution, whether or not we believe this United States Constitution means anything. We abide by our Constitution, we create security and peace. We abide by international law, we create security and peace. So, so our children need to know that there are leaders who are extending the hand of friendship, even with those who don't like us. We need to reach out. You know, there are people all over the world, they don't like our government, but they love the American people. Even if they're suffering, even if they believe that we've had something to do with their suffering, there's still a great love for the American people. We need a leader who can stand strongly for peace. CBS New York Times poll, 53% of Americans believe that their government is withholding information about 9-11. Do we know the whole truth? I would say no. Um, that's why in September I intend to hold a hearing, uh, albeit it's going to be in a tightly focused area dealing with 9-11 and some of the economic issues. Um, no, I think there's been a breach of trust that's been so powerful. It, it's not only about 9-11. People just don't trust the government mm -hmm. because they, they see the president's lied to them, Congress promised, uh, uh, Democrats promised, they get elected, they would get us out of a war, and now my party is basically gone along with supporting the war by funding it. See, I want to restore people's trust in government, but in order to do that, you yourself have to be worthy of trust in order to inspire people to trust the institution that uh, you would lead. And so it begins with um, a statement of real principles. You mentioned earlier, you know, there's, there has to be a connection between um, what we believe in and what we do. When people say, well, I don't, uh, uh, I'm opposed to the war, but, but they fund the war. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that, that there's a disconnection. And so, uh, and, and there has to be, uh, let, let me put it this way. When our Constitution was written, 
Our founders believed in separation of church and state, and, and I support the concept of separation of church and state because uh, we under, understood that when we broke with England, we also broke from the Church of England. And there was a, and a, and it's a, a, a real earnest effort to make sure that church and state would be separate. But you know, the founders never intended America to be separate from spiritual values. We must have spiritual values underpinning all of our policies, which means peace is a spiritual value. Okay. Harmony is a spiritual value, not only with other countries, but with nature. Um, honesty, of course, is spiritual value. Integrity. Trust is spiritual value. These are things that help bind our country together. So, as a president, I intend to reconnect America with those principles which link us to a devotion to, to natural law which our founders expressed support for. That, that, there's a, that above politics, there's a higher type of reasoning. It's moral reasoning. And our politics have been decoupled from morality. Our politics are both immoral and amoral. Our leaders have, are both immoral and amoral. Our politics must be restored to a condition where we believe in high principles and practice them. Not silently, but actively within our homes, within our, our legislatures, within the White House, within the world, and then America will once again become a beacon where people will see our light once again and we will be as a shining city on a hill where all will, will be attracted by our radiance. I want to restore America in that way. I want America to be believed and loved again. And, and I think in that way we can look to our children and know that we're doing everything we can to help create for them the world that, that we'd be so pleased to see them lived, live in. Hey everybody, I have a question for you. But before I can ask it, I gotta back up a little bit. The clips that you heard on today's episode were actually gathered together a few weeks ago. And as I sat down to edit these clips together, I realized that I didn't have an interview from Dennis Kucinich. So I went online to see what I could find. Um, I went to YouTube and I watched a few videos of him being interviewed by uh, various TV hosts. There was one on there from uh, his appearance on Bill Maher, and there's another one of David Letterman interviewing him. And these interviews were, they were all right. I mean, they were, they were funny, but then I came across an interview by a guy named Davis Fleetwood. It's actually the interview that you heard on this episode. And I realized something. I guess it's something that, that I always kind of knew. But listening to these interviews, you know, n right next to each other, just made it stand out even more. And that is that when people interview Dennis Kucinich, or even really just talk about him, and... This is something that I don't understand because I see it mostly coming from 
people on the left and that is that people have a tendency to trivialize him almost like we like you but there's no way you could become president that's kind of the vibe I get and I just I don't understand it but when I listen to that Davis Fleawood interview I didn't get that feeling at all he seemed to talk to Dennis and listen to what Dennis had to say in a very serious and respectful manner and uh, so that's why I played that video as opposed to any of the other ones that I found actually audio not video oh by the way uh, Davis Fleetwood has actually been putting up a bunch of great stuff on YouTube um, if you go to YouTube and do a search for Davis Fleetwood you can find some of his stuff or you can go to his official website at nocureforthat.wordpress.com and you can check out some of his stuff there too and uh, you won't be disappointed so Davis uh, I just want to say thank you for letting us play your interview but more importantly thank you for not being afraid to take Dennis Kucinich seriously and for showing him the respect that I think he really deserves so this brings me to the question that I want to ask all you guys and that is why do you think that people on the left don't take Dennis Kucinich seriously I have my own theories but I want to hear yours so I think I'm gonna start uh, post a thread about this on the forums um, you can get there from our website um, just click on the uh, community link and when you get there look for a thread called or look for a board called show discussion questions and I'm gonna put it in there and uh, if you feel so inclined please uh, drop in and tell me why you think that people on the left don't take Kucinich seriously so I think that's gonna wrap it up for this week um, thanks everyone for listening I'll be back in a week or maybe two um, with another show for you guys and uh, yeah that's it so peace Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fond farewell to a friend I couldn't get things right